think most of us have heard that phrase, mountaintop experience. And usually when you hear that in English, of course, you know immediately what it means. It means you've had some kind of really profound event, something that really shook you, moved you in some deep way, and you couldn't ignore it because it was in your face so thoroughly. Sometimes, you know, the birth of a child or a romantic relationship or out hiking literally on a mountaintop. Today we hear uh, about a mountaintop experience, and it may very well be that that's where that phrase comes from. I'm not sure. But here we find three disciples gathered with Jesus on a mountaintop. And what happens? Jesus is transformed. Jesus is transfigured. And in fact, so powerful is this experience that Luke tells us when Peter stammers out his phrase in response, Luke tells us he doesn't even know what he's saying. He's just not sure. His his tongue is tied. I'd like to speak to you today about this experience. And uh, there's lots of things to talk about here. It sort of reveals Jesus for who he is. Uh, God makes it clear, this is my son, listen to him. Uh, how when the uh, Moses and Elijah fade into the background, Jesus is left alone. And, and the clear implication is, is that the disciples are to follow Jesus because Jesus uh, is embodying God's mission fully. There's a lot going on here, but there's really two things today that I wanted to speak about because today we're on the verge of Lent in the church season. The church calendar year uh, on, April, on uh, Wednesday of this week, March the 6th, is Ash Wednesday. We start the journey of Lent in which we find weeks of depriving ourselves from certain things, focusing on the death of Jesus, looking forward to his resurrection. I think today as we hear this lesson, it should remind us of a couple of things. First of all, this lesson is a challenge to us, not just to see Jesus in the mountaintop experiences, but to find him in the everyday experiences of life. And secondly, the challenge is for us to be people who absorb that light of Christ when we do experience him in worship, and to be the ones who show that light of Christ in the world so that we might be instruments that show God's glory because of our ability to reflect the light and the glory of God. Let's look at the first thing about why this is a challenge for us to see Jesus out in the world and not just on the mountaintop. First, a little background. This mountaintop experience, it's helpful for us to understand how truly transformative and mountaintop it must have been for those three disciples. When we hear about Jesus' face transfigured and his clothes dazzling white, this isn't sort of like a a laundry detergent commercial. It's not how fantastic it is Jesus got his really white robes. What this is instead is is that it's usually a a signal or a symbol throughout the scriptures. When we see something dazzling white, um, that's not something that was easy to do in the ancient world. Uh, Most people didn't have nice bleached cotton shirts that we take for granted. Instead, you'd wear sort of more drab things. A tunic would be whatever natural color, the flax or the other things that were used to put together your clothes. And so to have something dazzling white, first of all, points to a kind of richness that you're capable of, of sustaining in the ways that most people couldn't. And so that dazzling nature also points to uh, throughout the scriptures because this is something rare. It was something that was usually as a code for something truly holy and magnificent. We heard in the Old Testament lesson in Exodus 34 that when Moses goes and encounters God on the mountain of Sinai, he speaks to God face to face, we're told, and then he comes down and we're told something amazing, that his skin was glowing so much that the uh, people at the bottom of the mountain said, we, we, we can't look at you, Moses. And Moses has to put a veil over his face and speak to them through a veil. Of course, that's not the only time where we find that transfiguration and dazzling white. You may remember when uh, the women come on Easter Sunday and find the tomb empty, and they find, uh, uh, we're told, figures clothed in dazzling white. Uh, and this is a sing- signal. These are not just ordinary fellows. These are 
people who glow with transcendent holiness. They're angels who announce Jesus' resurrection. We also find uh, men in white as uh, Jesus is ascended into heaven. And so we find, of course, this in the book of Revelation, the elders and others around the throne of God clothed in dazzling white. So you've got that, this holiness that's so great that they don't know what to really describe other than to say it dazzles us. Then, uh, the two people around Jesus. When Peter looks up and he sees not only Jesus, the person he's following, his humble leader and, and his ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors following him, he's flanked by perhaps the two greatest figures of prophecy in Israel's history, Moses, who is still revered to this day by the Jewish people as the one who gave them the law. The first five books, uh, most of uh, the first five books of uh, the Bible were ones that describe Moses' life. Halfway through Exodus or beginning of Exodus about the ark of Moses' life, giving them the law, leading Israel out of Egypt. And then we find Elijah, one of the greatest of the prophets. Elijah, uh, throughout the first book of Kings, uh, does magnificent, incredible things. So you've got two of the great superstars of the Old Testament flanking Jesus. And can you imagine? Can you imagine perhaps that you've been coming to this church and you think, you know, Father Stephen's a pretty decent priest and does a pretty decent job in preaching. And then one day you show up and it's like the greatest preachers, you know, Martin Luther King standing next to me here and St. John Chrysostom, the other, and, and, and they're glowing with magnificence. Then you'd think, wow, I was pretty right about this guy. I really backed the right horse. And that's in a lot of ways exactly what's going on with Peter and the disciples. He stammers, he doesn't know what to do, he's amazed, and, and, and he says, let's build three dwellings. And he says, these are like little shrines to commemorate this fantastic event. And if that's not enough, a voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. This is incredible. Not only did they follow Jesus, now they're aware that he is, is transcendent in his greatness, that God has given him such authority that when Jesus speaks, consider it me speaking. And a divine cloud surrounds him. And then uh, everything leaves and Jesus alone is there. It's just unmistakable that they've had a transformative experience. But here's what's really interesting. You may have noticed the contrast, though, this transformative experience these three disciples have. And then Jesus immediately afterwards takes the disciples down back into the everyday life down in the valley. And what happens? Instead of Jesus, um, instead of uh, Jesus glowing all the way down and filled with glow, Jesus' glow and his dazzling nature all disappears. And he's back as far as everybody else in the village is concerned, looking like an average uh, Galilean peasant. And in fact, throughout the rest of the gospel, even Peter and James and John who saw these things and can be expected to say, this guy is so full of glory and I saw it for a moment and even though he was veiled again, I know who he is. But what happens as soon as Jesus runs into trouble with the authorities? Jesus is arrested, and we all know what happens with Peter. Peter denies him three times. Instead of saying, this guy is so holy, I am going to hold on to this guy. No matter what everybody says, the disciples all scatter. We find later in Luke's gospel, even after the resurrection happened, and the disciples hear the, the women have told them the tomb is empty, and angels said that he's risen. They're not sure what to believe. Right after that uh, evening of that day, two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. And they run into a stranger who doesn't look like anybody uh, special. And he walks with them, and they don't realize it's Jesus. They have a long conversation with him. In fact, so ordinary does Jesus look, they don't recognize him for who he is. And they say, uh, while well, all these things happen, we had believed that this guy was the Messiah. In other words, we're not really sure anymore. 
They were unable to see Jesus even when he walked with them. And that, I think, is a lesson for us. I think for many of us, when we come to church, uh, thankfully the survey we just did said most people come to church thinking, I'm really uplifted by this. I'm uplifted by meeting friends in church or uh, going to Bible studies or the different events that we do. And in a lot of ways, we come to church not necessarily that, that rocks our world in the way that the Transfiguration did, but we come and we're lifted up by music. We maybe hear a good word. We meet a friend. We, we do things that lift us up. And we feel uplifted. And, and it's easy enough for us to believe Jesus is at work here. And, and so we come and receive communion and we say, uh, this is something great and Jesus feeds us. It becomes a lot harder for us when we walk out those doors to actually believe that Jesus isn't waiting here for us until we come back. But in fact, he's already out there at work in the world. And our job is to open our eyes and see it. Those disciples didn't appreciate it. So the, the truth that it is that the same transfigured divine son was the same one who was walking with them, breaking bread with them, arguing with people in the temple. Are we prepared to go out of the doors each time we come to church and see that Jesus and expect that Jesus is at work in the world around us? You see, these mountaintop experiences for us are not so that we can build little shrines and stay on the mountaintop. These times where we see Christ face to face, we see him powerfully, is so that we can recognize him when his face is veiled out in the world. We see Jesus face to face in this church is so that we can recognize him when we see him out there. And frankly, when we open our eyes and we ask God to show us, it becomes much more clear that Jesus has not abandoned us by staying here, but in fact, Jesus is out there operative in the world and we're not alone. Now, I've been reading a really interesting book, an Anglican priest named Tish Warren, and she wrote a book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. And what that book was about was about how she as an Anglican priest, of course, uh, worships, she leads, she sees God present, but she wonders that during the other six days of the week where she's doing things like raising her children and doing the laundry, like where's God in all of that? And so she talks about the liturgy of the ordinary in which she begins her day asking, Jesus, can you show me where you're present in everyday things? And she says it's transformative because once you start asking God to show you Jesus, you begin to see him everywhere. Just as something as simple, she says, is when she gets up to brush her teeth. When you're looking in the mirror, do you realize what you're looking at in the mirror? You're not just looking at the person with bed head and who's got sort of jungle breath and all those other things you do when you wake up in the morning. What are you looking at? We are told in the, God, in the book of Genesis that the God's greatest creation is human beings. God said, let us create human beings in our image and he created the male and female. Do you realize that whatever it is that you're looking at in the mirror and noticing, are you failing to notice that you're looking at the image of God? Yes, sometimes it's veiled by our sins. Sometimes it's veiled uh, because we're, we're not paying attention. But she said something as simple as brushing your teeth. Do you know what you're doing? You're taking care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're taking care of God's image. There's an act of worship and caring for your body in the everyday events of life that says, God, I am grateful that you made me as I am. She says it's transformative when you're wiping little toddler bums or when you're folding laundry. What are you caring for? You're caring for the image of God and these little ones that God's given you concern over. Or think about the many opportunities we have where Jesus has given that story of the Good Samaritan who by the wayside has been broken and hurt and is waiting for someone to care for him and all the religious good people ignore him until a Samaritan comes by and cares for him. 
Do we recognize the broken person by the side of the road and see here's an opportunity for us to be like Jesus? Or do we recognize sometimes it's the Samaritan and us lying on the side of the road and seeing a simple act of kindness from a stranger who owes us nothing and think, thank you, God, that you put on the heart of this stranger or this person who owes me nothing to do something kind for me. Let it remind me that you are present in the world working on people's hearts. The first thing that I think we get out of this Transfiguration episode today is it should challenge us to begin each morning asking God, open my eyes to see where you are already active in this world so that I might see you when you're veiled and that I might not just wait to see you when you're unveiled in church and in worship and on mountaintops. It can transform your life to realize you're not alone in the world, but you're present with Christ who is always working and advocating for you. The second thing I mentioned, though, is not just that we are trained to see Jesus in the world when we see him face to face. The second thing is it is challenging us to be the kind of people who, like Moses, after our encounter with Jesus, actually glow with that same holiness. Do you notice what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain? We're told that after encountering God face to face, he absorbs this holiness so much that everybody can't mistake it. He's glowing with holiness. And, of course, what happens? People say, just cover it up. I don't want to see it too much. It's interesting here because when we notice what happens right after Jesus is transfigured and the disciples see it, do you notice that the disciples don't come down glowing with holiness and radiance? In fact, what happens after they come down from the mountaintop and the disciples have had a profound, transformative, transfiguring experience, they've seen God face to face, and then what does Jesus say about these disciples who have just been in the presence of God? He says, you faithful and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? That does not sound like, man, you disciples really soaked up the holiness there. I'm really impressed. Instead, they can't do something to rescue a boy who's in the grip of an unclean and evil force. And Jesus casts it out. What's going on here? You know, it's interesting because the scriptures... Um, it's sort of an early form of, of uh, hypertext. Do you know what hypertext is or a hyperlink? When you're on a, a website and whenever there's a reference, it's underlined and you click on it and then it takes you to another website that explains something else going on. The scriptures are like that. They refer to each other all the time. Here's an interesting thing that comes out of 2 Corinthians uh, that St. Paul is writing to the Corinthian people. He says this in chapter 3, verse 12. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Then later he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy we're engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We've renounced the shameful things that one hides, refuse to practice cunning or falsify God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. What is he saying? He's saying there's a difference that happens when the Spirit of God is present. When the Spirit of God is present, there is freedom, he says, the freedom to see and to be the people who reflect God's glory in a powerful way. You may know that whole story arc of how it is that the disciples scatter, they're frightened, they're gathered, even after Jesus' resurrection until what happened? 
the day of Pentecost, a great mighty wind blows, fire falls from heaven, the disciples rush out into the streets where they had been afraid and are filled with boldness and start proclaiming Jesus. And 3,000 on that day come to form, uh, to begin the church in Jerusalem. 3,000 in one day. Why? Because the disciples are praying that God's Spirit would come and give them boldness. And so finally, after all this time, after the transfiguration, when do they start reflecting God's glory? When the Holy Spirit comes with power and they start showing the world who Jesus really is. Now for us, I think one of the challenges is when we come and we find ourselves in worship, being pleased by God, being happy that God loves us, being reminded of God's power and what he's done, it's so easy for us to be like Peter and say, that was great. I'm going to set up a little shrine here at Good Shepherd. And every week I'm going to come back to the shrine and feel how wonderful it is that the Holy Spirit is there. Instead, Jesus may very well be saying the same thing to us that he said to the disciples. What a scary thought. How, must I, how long must I put up with you? You who come and soak up the glory of the Lord, but then veil your faces and don't show it into the world. Isn't that what Jesus wants us to do? How are people going to encounter God to learn about the goodness of who God is, of his love for sinners and for the lost and the broken and the hurting if we aren't out there showing and saying that that is exactly the way things are? God loves you and he wants you to be an instrument of his love in this world. And yet so easily we put that veil over our faces because in our minds we don't ask God to transform us. We ask God to bless us to give us what we want, but do we ask that God truly changes us into instruments of his glory and his love in the world? And this is a challenge for us. Not to be like the people of Israel who demand Moses veils his face, but instead say, God, take off that veil so that we might show the world who you are by our actions and our words. So what do we do when we gather? When we find ourselves on a mountaintop experience, we're blessed by God. Here's one thing that I think is really important for us to do. To ask God in the same way that the disciples asked God to bless them that they might show God in the world. Let us ask God to send his spirit so that our hearts are prepared for God's word to take root. Something as simple as taking two minutes before you come to church in the morning to say, God, prepare my heart to receive anything you want to say or show me. God, open my heart so that if there's a word, let it take root so that I can go out into the world and bear fruit and show it. If there's something I need to do, make it clear to me. If there's something that needs to change in my life, make it clear. It's not a coincidence that this passage is always read on the Sunday just before Lent starts because Lent is a journey where we ask God and ask ourselves, what should we change so that we make it easier for God to be seen in this world? This Sunday is a good chance for us to say, God, if there's anything in my life that is preventing me from seeing you or from your word taking root, let this time of Lent, the many weeks ahead of us, be a time where those things are cleared away. If it's habits, if it's behaviors, if it's patterns of thought, start thinking, God, show me these things. They may be ripped away so that your word might take root in the way that it should because, Jesus, I want to show you to this world because I want to be the kind of person who soaks up your glory, not for myself, but so that I might be a conduit to reflect your glory in this world. This is what I want to end with. When I was uh, had my children really, really young, I don't know how we got this. I think somebody gave it to us. But do you remember Care Bears? Well, we had, a, I can't remember which, they had all this thousand different Care Bears with different names, but it had a little cutesy little heart on it, and it was a, it was a stuffed bear, right? Apart from it being a weird color of green, it looked normal, right? You can just imagine in the daytime, the toddlers would be dragging the thing around, and 
But here's what was interesting about it. It looked like a regular little bear during the day when it was soaking up the light. But I tucked the little kids in and they were scared and I brought in the little Care Bear and turned out the light. Do you know what happened? That Care Bear glowed. It was a glow-in-the-dark Care Bear. It didn't have any light itself, but what did it do? During the day, when it was in the light, it soaked the light up. So when the lights went out, it illuminated the room and took away the fears of a little toddler who is scared of the dark. You can be a little Care Bear in this world. Don't let this light be something you keep to yourself, but soak it up and go into the world so that where there is darkness, you can illuminate and help those people who live in fear and in darkness see the light of God working through you. It's not your power. It's God's power working through you that can do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine. Let that be the time this Lent where you become a Care Bear for the Lord.